Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. Psalm 12. Uh, what a powerful little chapter as we step into our 13th week together. And we're going to pull everything out of it that we can. But first, how's your week been? We've had a crazy couple of weeks finishing up our move. Uh, our church is great. ton of people offered to help. Uh, I do find that all too often I don't reach out for help enough. Um, but that's not just true in my physical life. David doesn't ever seem to have a problem calling out for help. And we'll see that right at the beginning of this chapter. Psalm 12, beginning in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Help. What a small word what a powerful meaning. How often do we reach out to those around us for help? How often do we search on the internet for help? And how proud we are not to ask for help sometimes when we need it most. You know, we're quick to run to the Lord after we've exhausted all other avenues. We try in our own might to do what we can to fix our own problem. You know, there was a time in my younger life where my wife Crystal and I were briefly separated. And we reconciled. I was an idiot at the time, and she lost patience for that. But I, I decided to be less of an idiot, and we moved back in together and lived together as a married couple. At that point in time, I thought I had it all figured out. I was doing the right things. Everything was perfect in my eyes. I had fixed our marriage by changing myself, and all was well. No need for counseling. That was for other people. And how wrong I was. While I thought all was well, my wife knew it wasn't. I'd failed her in so many ways and betrayed her trust so many times that unbeknownst to me, there was still a lot of justifiable distrust and fear of when I might change my mind again in the relationship. But I, I trucked along with a smile on my face. Oh, we were working on it. We were doing it. I had it all figured out. 
Like casual church attendance was enough. As long as the kids were there, I didn't really have to be. It was fine. Everything was fine. I mean, just look at what I had accomplished. What an idiot. In just a matter of months, the facade just fell completely apart because I had accomplished nothing. When my failure to accomplish what I thought I had came to light, finally, it broke me. Oh, and don't get me wrong, at first I tried to rationalize, at first I tried to sell more lies to myself, and then I realized I, I didn't have any idea how to do this. And then I hit my knees and sincerely prayed for help. Help for myself first, my wife second, my marriage last. I finally understood that the marriage wouldn't work if we didn't fix our relationship with God first, so I asked for help. What heartache could have been spared if at first I had cried out for help and not leaned on my own understanding? What a different story I could tell if I had gone to him first begging for a change in me that he could sustain. Begging for a restored relationship that would allow him to change me. What's the driving decision that makes us run to him last? What's the pride factor of what causes us to choose him finally instead of firstly? As David expounds here on the help that he needs, is it perhaps that the godly men and women were in jeopardy of extinction because we don't turn to him first? As Christians, why do we search for answers in books and great speakers before we search the word for a solution? I just don't know how to deal with my rebellious child. When the Bible speaks of God's mercy and grace for a world that has rebelled against him. The Bible speaks of sacrificial love that changes the hearts of men and women. The Bible speaks of love that corrects and love that heals. Well, I just don't know how to deal with this rift in my marriage. Well, the Bible speaks of how Christ loves the church as a man should love his wife. The Bible speaks of love and respect for the woman and the man bound together in marriage. Well, I don't know how to deal with this issue at work. Well, the Bible speaks of how we're to worship God in our work, how he's to get the glory in all things. The Bible speaks of patience, and here's where I struggle at times at work, and how we're to exercise it with our fellow man. Do godly people wane because we're not stepping up and getting our help from where we need it? Sure, supplemental books aren't bad, but turn to them to help understand a biblical passage, not to replace it. Every answer we need for everyday life can be found between the verses of Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. All we need are contained in these volumes, yet so often they're our last resort. 
we get frustrated when we can't find answers where we want to and the faithful fail. They wax weak because we're not drawing our strength from his word. Specifically, we fail from the children of men. We falter. We fade into the background. We vanish. Now, we, we won't cease to exist, but our influence vanishes. How? How can our influence vanish? You know, we speak vanity sometimes with our neighbors. We fall into their vain conversation. We get caught up in the mundane and pointless small talk instead of the fruitful and God-led conversations we could be having. Well, come on, we can't make every conversation about God. Can't we? Tell me it's impossible to speak a single word of how God has blessed you in every conversation. It's not that every conversation has to be about God, but every conversation can point to him. Look at every historical event in the Old Testament. Not every story was about God, but every story was centered around a specific theme that told of God and how he worked or blessed in the story. So tell me again that we can't work God into every conversation. Work may be a different story, I guess. I know we all have restrictions there. But every other conversation we have socially can point to the God we serve. Why do we feel the need to acquiesce to the flattery of their lips? We say that they've done a good thing in this regard and then tell them in the same breath how they're a sinner and God loves them. Our society, and to be more specific, the sinner, doesn't need help from the Christian to excuse their sins and promote their own righteousness. Well, it's okay to do this thing because the end result is good, but the only good you can do, we know, is through salvation. The Lord otherwise doesn't recognize any goodness at all. Well, this Hollywood personality or this influencer, they've done so good for St. Jude Children's Hospital, but they're on their eighth marriage. They've got six kids by four of their ex-spouses. Where's the continuity? Where's our fear to call out sin as sin and not laud any good if it's not the good our Lord would consider good? I've even said it before to my own wife. I really like so-and-so as an actor, and their marriage to their spouse just seems so sweet. Yet their lives show no evidence of Christ. They claim no religion, no God, no church. How double-hearted of me to laud their contributions to society and then get up and preach or speak on this podcast about how the wicked can do no good at all in the absence of salvation. We know that the Lord will cut off all the flattering lips of the wicked. Those who praise each other in vanity. The tit-for-tat of the counterstroking of the egos of the wicked is so prevalent in our culture that even we as Christians fall into the traps of their flattering lips as we nod our heads 
and agree with them. I remember when uh, one of our presidents in the latter half of the aughts was running for the office. I, I, I really didn't like anything he had to say, nor did I like his party. Yet I found myself saying to Crystal, his rhetoric and speech is so good that I just find myself captivated every time he speaks. He campaigned on change, 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 yet in his campaign and then in his presidency, the change was never defined or brought into reality. On the other side of the aisle, I found myself excusing the bad behavior, the poor personality, and the self-glorifying rhetoric of a more recent president because I found favorable points in his policy. Meanwhile, these are the lips that will be cut off. Not literal lips being cut off here, but what this means is that it will cease. The self-flattery will end. There will be a stop to it. Especially the latter president who was unable to keep his ego and his pride in check at all. The tongue that speaks proud things may be the worst companion to flattering lips. It gets caught in this endless loop of, wow, you're so good, but then so am I. Then, then you're so good, and so am I. The other side of the conversation, just as wicked, echoes the exact same. And the loop goes on and on and on. Oh, I'm so good. I'm so awesome. Look at all that we've accomplished Look at how awesome we are. Look how far humanity has come, freed from the bondage of a God who only wants to tell us what to do. Haven't we come so far from our patriarchal suppressors? How wonderful that as humanity we could move past the fetters that bound us in these definitions imposed on us by an ancient and outdated text that is no longer relevant. What prideful and haughty things we sing as our own praises when we allow our tongues to glorify our own accomplishments. This is how they speak the lies of how they will prevail. Oh, we'll eradicate the oppression of the old ways of outdated morals. We can redefine all morality and remake ourselves not in God's image, but in the image of what we desire to be. If we say it enough, it will be true as everyone begins to accept and believe our loud voices and our prevalent theories. We can, after all, say whatever we want. No one can control our lips. How dangerous our belief as a society that we think we can move away from and change morality. If we twist morality... What's going to govern our absolute rights and wrongs? The argument becomes that, well, there are no absolutes. And I hate to tell you, that's a contradictory statement. Saying that there are no absolutes is in itself an absolute and therefore argues and supports the point that there are, in fact, absolutes. In the argument, the world has solidified the truth that it's seeking to contend 
As the mentality of our flesh creeps in to infect all facets of our lives, we cry to our God and seek refuge from the influence that the same flesh tries to exert over us. We're oppressed and needy, but we're oppressed by the desires of our own flesh, and we are in need of the righteous truth that only God can provide. The picture painted here so aptly put by Spurgeon is that of a father running to the aid of his children. Even as we suffer at the hand of our own flesh, he hears our cries and enables us in his own power because we're incapable of this combat on our own to stand against the onslaught of the fiery darts hurled at us. As he stands to come to our aid, his intervention comes through the power of his word. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Exodus 15.2, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Deuteronomy 24, for the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men and be strong. 2 Corinthians 1, 7 says, and our hope of you is steadfast knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Oh, the, the enemy snorts at us. He thinks he has the power to blow us over with a single breath. Appealing to our flesh, the enemy thinks he can blow us away with this and that. Move us with every wind of change. So he sows truth in with the lies he spouts and twists the word of God just like he did with Eve in Eden. But our Lord has set us in safety. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Who will move us? Who will cause us not to stand fast? If we cannot be moved, standing firm in the power of our God, how is it then that we move at all? And there it is. We move. Who can cause us to be moved? Don't blame Satan. He and his minions just support the thought of moving. They cheer on the thought of moving. They enable the thought of moving. We're the only ones that can do the moving. We choose to move. 
If our Lord can keep us from every ill wind, if we can stand firm in our faith in him, and we can, it's only you and I who can do the actual moving. If we were to stand firm in him, how much simpler our lives? Well, we rely entirely too much on our own strength. We lean far too hard on the advice of others. The truths we seek, the help we need, they're all found right here in this book we study. How do we gauge wise counsel? Well, if our counsel is telling us to look at specific scripture or books based on scripture, then we've found wise counsel. The counsel that tells us to just do whatever feels right and find ourselves, this is the counsel of a fool. Find yourself? You can only find your purpose in him. Whatever feels right? Well, that can change situationally, but God's word does not change. God's word remains ever true. They're the only words in which we find true purity, true morality. They're the only words that define our absolutes. What's wrong? Offenses against God and his image bearers are wrong, even if the image bearer commits that wrong against themselves. What's right? To glorify God, worship him, and bear his image in the righteousness of his son. These are the basic tenets of the Ten Commandments. These are the truths we find in his word. How do we know them to be right? When a society lives by these rules, there's harmony. There's a sense of justice and a sense of right. What happens when society abandons these truths? Murder of unborn children. This is an offense against two image bearers at the same time. Theft of property and covetous desires that drive us to hate. This is an offense against an image bearer. Self-definition and mutilation of the body as God has designed us. This is against the image bearer of self. Also an offense against God as in doing so, we say that what he made was not very good. You see a suspension of morality, which is an offense against God as in doing so, we say his way cannot be right. So let us redefine it. Then we're surprised as we lose respect for life because we've reduced it to just causality and happenstance, another offense against God and his image bearers. The list continues and it seems to be endless. And as we watch a society fall, we see the truths that have been tried over and over again to be self-evident. All mankind is created equal and their God loves them equally. God holds them responsible equally. God will judge them equally. To those that run to him, turn to him, those are the ones he will preserve. Keep. Hold fast. While the wicked utter lies in vain flattering with their lips, the promises and words of Jehovah are yes and amen. 
Tried in the furnaces of the vain, they may find fault in them, but the fault they find only reveals more truth until what is left is the pure truth, blatant and unavoidable, obvious and undeniable. Seven always represents the perfecting of something in the Bible, and who else to have the perfect truth and perfect words than our great God? Have we tried his promises? Have we found them to be true? Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. Romans 10, 9, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. John 10, 28 and 29, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. This David knew to be true, that those that are God's he will keep, guard, protect, sanctify. That means to set apart to himself. He didn't save us to be like everyone else. He didn't save us to be tossed about on every whim of doctrine and cultural revolution. But he's also not saved us to be silent. He's preserved his called believers from David's generation to now and for forever to come. We will not perish. We will not fail. Oh, we may fail personally from time to time, but God's gospel, God's people will not fail. The cause of Christ will not fail. We are, we're preserved forever. The rock on which we stand is no sandstone. Nothing can erode the bedrock of our foundation. It stood the test of time and it will stand the test of time. The faith has not changed because our God has not changed. It's been misinterpreted and misrepresented, but it's not changed. Distill it down, put it to the test, try it in the fire. You'll find it still holds true that God is merciful to us as sinners. You'll find that it's still in his power to save those that come to him. You'll find the efficacy of the blood of Christ is still as potent today as it was for the thief on the cross who saw it flowing from the hands of Christ and down that wooden beam that held him in place. This is the blood in which we're preserved. This is the unchanging, ever-present, and obvious love of our God. Yet we look and we're surrounded by the evidences that our flesh also has not changed. Men are still wicked. We are still vile. We still hold in high esteem those that we perceive to be good or have done good, and we praise, and dare I say at times, worship, those that have the popularity we desire, the talent we desire, the life we desire.
So where do our desires lie? Will we be the godly that cease while a remnant remains? Or will we be the remnant itself? Our prayer should ever be that the Lord keep us as only he can in his power and help us to not rely on our own strength, but to lean on his. The only way to endure, the only way to push forward into the battle is by leaning into his strength. Give up the yoke of responsibility we try to place on ourselves and let him be responsible for the success of our skirmishes. It's only in him we can conquer because he's made us more than conquerors. The battle truly belongs to him. Now, thanks for walking with me while we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further? If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.